This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Lifeway hosted a track called How to Mature People Through Disciple Making. That's where we recorded the audio for today's episode. Daniel M. led this track for Lifeway's team, and one of the resources he mentions during this track is his new book, No Silver Bullets. We've worked with him to provide a sampler of this book, two chapters or so. So make sure to go online and download this free PDF sampler of Daniel's new book, No Silver Bullets, which is about five small shifts that will transform your ministry. Download this at discipleship.org lifeway. And just a heads up, we weren't able to capture all the audio when people ask questions. So bear with us as you hear presenters periodically respond without necessarily hearing the question at hand. And now for the track session. All right, so hey, how about we pray and we'll get started here. Uh, but before we do that, how many of you were in my last session, the one that I did yesterday? So, okay, so not everyone. So there's going to be... La- you know, probably like halfway through my talk, there's going to be a little bit of an overlap because I need to talk about the input-output goal stuff again. But it'll be a good refresher, and uh, but it'll that's just going to be a portion of it. The rest is going to be new for you. All right, so let's pray. Uh, Lord, we praise you for this morning. We praise you that we can uh, just take some time to look at what it um, looks like to create a discipleship pathway for our church. Uh, one that sees the lost um, be one to Christ, uh, sees those who are um, culturally Christian uh, renew their dedication and their devotion to you. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would give us insight into how everything that we are doing um, is either moving people towards you or away from you. So grant us wisdom and discernment and fill us with your spirit. Um, uh, and we just give you glory during this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so now think about your church here, right? So when you think about your church, regardless of the role that you have in your church, if you're a volunteer or the senior pastor or a staff member or, you know, a deacon or, you know, whatever role you have in your church, just, just think about your church. And, I mean, what would it look like for, you know, if God were to answer every single one of your prayers for your church, what do you think your church would look like and be like tomorrow? Right, because it's, it's a simple question, but the, the thing is, we don't, we, all, all our churches actually wouldn't look the same if God were to answer all our prayers for our church tomorrow. So think about it. What do you regularly pray for your church Uh, Would your church be, so let's say God answered all your prayers that you've been praying for for your church tomorrow. Would your church then be maybe a reflection of Matthew 28, 18 to 20, right? Where your church is full of disciple making disciples that are infiltrating, you know, all areas of your city. And and what does that then look like? Does it look like more small groups being formed from disciples making disciples? Or is it campuses being started? Or is it churches being planted? Or is it house churches? Or, you know, new, I mean, what does that look like? What, what, is, what is that dream that God has given you for your church? Or maybe if God were to answer all your prayers, it'd be Revelation 7-9, right? And you'd see your worship service be full of every, you know, nation, tribe, tongue, and language. I mean, maybe, maybe that's, what the, you, that's what your church would look like if he had answered that 
tomorrow, or maybe it would be Acts 2, 42 to 47, and you would see such a deep level of community and people being one to Christ on a daily basis uh, because of the community of the people. Now, whatever dream God has given you for your church, um, I want to tell you that it is possible, right? I mean, it's not necessarily these, I mean, those are biblical visions for, for the bride of Christ, and it's not an impossible thing, but in order to discover and move toward the vision that God has given you for your church, you actually need to have two critical pieces in order. Because a lot of times this is what we do, right? We, you know, rightly will, you know, get on our knees, we'll pray for, I mean, obviously, you know, you even look at Matthew 9, 35 to 38, and it's like, hey, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And, you know, what does God ask us? You know, what, what are we supposed to do in light of that? Well, we're supposed to pray. Right. I mean, that's the response. And, and, you know, we take that and we're like, yes, we also have to train. We also have to recruit. We also have to develop. But it says there in the scripture, we got to pray. Right. We got to pray. So a lot of times what we actually do when it comes to, you know, we think a discipleship pathway or we think of church strategy. We obviously we, we're just like, well, I mean, shouldn't we just pray? And yes, we have to pray. And yes, I mean, you know, we've all heard stories of people being like, hey, you know, all I did was pray. And I just, I prayed for hours and hours and hours and God somehow made it grow or God somehow did something. And yeah, I mean, the prayer was a huge part of it, but people led. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And, and, and the people that led and the person that's saying, no, it's all, all a result of prayer, all a result of prayer. I mean, they lead, they are leading in a certain way. And a lot of times, if we don't articulate how we're leading or why we're leading, or we don't understand why we're leading the way we're leading, I mean, it's, it's, it's not reproducible. You know what I'm talking about? Right? Because we're all going to lead in a certain way. There's stuff that was done, but how do you view that? That's what we're trying to get at here. So when you look at the vision that God has given you for your church, everything that a church does, right, everything that a church does really comes under these two big, broad banners, right? It's your discipleship pathway and your leadership pipeline. And if I were to draw it out here for you just for a moment, I mean, this is a really easy way to, uh, to just understand the difference between the two. Now, we're going to be focusing on the discipleship pathway end of things, but I just wanted to show you how they relate with one another, right? So what we just talked about there, you know, this vision that God has given you for your church, Right, whatever that is. Now, I mentioned Matthew 28. I met, mentioned uh, Revelation 7. I mentioned Acts 2. I mean, these are biblical visions. And regardless of whether your church, uh, you know, where, where, and I didn't talk about the great commandment one either, right? But you're thinking about, hey, this vision that God has given you for a church. I mean, it really should, most of our visions for our churches should pretty much be similar, Right, because God is, I mean, it should really be a contextualized version of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Now, you can word it the way you want to word it, it's fine, but the biblical vision that God has given us for the church, I mean, it's there. But the way we get there is different. And the way we get there is you'll have on the one hand your leadership pipeline, and you have on the other hand your discipleship pathway. Now, the reason I draw it out like this, connected like a double helix, is because sometimes they, they, they look one in the same, right? So think about it like this. Your leadership pipeline is what you do 
uh, Ephesians 4 to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Right? That's what your leadership pipeline is doing. Your discipleship pathway are the things that you do to mature people toward Christ. Now, when you mature people toward Christ, are you also, can you also be equipping them for the work of ministry? Yeah. And when you're equipping people for the work of ministry, are you also then maturing them toward Christ? Right? So in light of that, some people actually say that discipleship and leadership are along the same continuum. Right? That, and and here, here's where this originated. Um, so what I do at Lifeway, I'm, I lead newchurches.com, and, and the team that I'm on is Lifeway Leadership. So everything that we do is all about, hey, resourcing church leaders. How many of you, have, uh, how many of you listen to the New Churches podcast? Okay, a few. How many of you listen to the 5LQ podcast? Okay, a few others. How many of you have heard of the Pipeline Conference? Like Life with Leadership Pipeline Conference. Okay, so that's the team that I'm on. You know, we focus on leadership development. So we've brought about 2,000 pastors and church leaders through our leadership pipeline process. So this is a coaching process that we have to help churches develop their leadership pipeline. Right, so that's what I do during the day. But me, I'm like, I'm a... I'm a discipleship first kind of guy. And I'm like, hey, I, I, every day, all day, I'm passionate about church leaders, but you can't get there without people being discipled, right? So here's the tension that I faced. Uh, in, our, in our leadership pipeline process, we, have this co- we, we basically take a competency-based approach to development. So you have these competencies like discipleship, uh, vision, um, people development, stewardship, collaboration, and strategy, right? One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. So you have these six competencies and the story of how we identified those, it's a, it was a two-year research project uh, that we basically tried to figure out, hey, there's this book called The Leadership Code. And in the book, The Leadership Code, they, it was a secular research project where they identified that 60 to 70% of what makes someone effective in their role is transferable across roles and across organizations at that same level. So in other words, if you're a children's pastor at one church, 60 to 70% of what makes you really good as a children's pastor at one church is transferable to another church if you go from one church to another, but still at the children's pastor role. 60 to 70%, right? 30%, uh, you know, 30 to 40% is going to be contextual. 60 to, yeah, 30, I was like, is my math right? Uh, 30 to 40% is going to be different, right? And we know that from sports. If you know, I mean, just look at trades that happen and some guys are really good on other teams and not very good on the other ones. And so we know that there's the contextual piece to it. So in light of that data, uh, at Lifeway Leadership, we actually then said, okay, what is, do, does that 60 to 70% rule apply in the church? And how many of you are familiar with the book Designed to Lead? Designed to, okay, so a few more people, Eric Geiger, Kevin Peck. So if you read the book, the last two chapters of the book uh, are all built on the research project that I was a part of, that, that our team was a part of there. Right, so we identified these six competencies. It's actually, I think, I believe it was about 280 or so that we had uh, identified, and we whittled it down to these six broad competencies. And we said, hey, here are the six broad competencies. So whether you're a children's pastor, a student pastor, a senior pastor, an elder, a deacon, or or a, a you know an usher, or a parking lot attendant, or a Sunday school teacher, these six core competencies are need to. I mean, these are evident 
and you need to grow in them to be a good leader. Now, how do you grow up in that? I mean, you got volunteers, leaders, ministry directors, and senior leaders, right? There are these different levels. So do you see how this competency chart works? Where basically, think about it like this, when it comes to vision, right, what would you want your volunteers, and this is competency-based education, so it's like, for a volunteer, what does proficiency look like as it relates to the people development, uh, as it relates to the vision competency? So your church has a vision. So every single volunteer, what would you want them to, what is it like, what is it, what does proficiency look like in regards to your church's vision? Well, they should know the vision, right? Like, I'm not talking about congregant. A, A congregant who is just coming and not serving or volunteering, they're not on your leadership pipeline. So for a volunteer, I mean, you would want them to know the vision, right? That's, that's proficiency. And if they can know, the, I mean, how, do all of your volunteers know the vision of your church? No. But you would want them to know the vision, especially if they're volunteer, right? So you would want your ushers to know the vision of the church, right? And then how about your leaders? Well, you would want your leaders to be able to articulate the vision, because we know knowing it is not the same thing as articulating and communicating it. Right? So, and then, so that's proficiency for a leader. At the ministry director level, well, you would want your ministry directors to be able to contextualize the vision. Right? I mean, here's, I mean, you don't want your kids, if your church's vision is like to know, love, and serve Jesus Christ, you know, for all the days, you know, whatever it is, right? You, would, you wouldn't want your children's ministry vision statement to be like uh, to help children serve the under-resourced, you know, blah, 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 blah. I mean, you, you wouldn't want it to be so drastically different than your church's vision, right? You would want your, if your church's vision is like to know, love, and serve you know, to, to develop disciples that know, love, and serve Jesus Christ, I mean, you would want your kids' ministry vision to be to develop children to know, love, and serve Jesus Christ, right? The way that the strategy happens to lay it out and all that, I mean, that's very, then you get even more contextual because it's kids' ministry is different than adults' ministry and all that stuff, right? But you would want them to be able to contextualize it. So for the senior leader, you would want them to be able to create vision, so the beauty of a competency-based, and this, I mean, this literally, I mean, 2,000 people we've brought through this. I mean, what we basically do is we give you a starting point for all this, and then it's like, hey, how do we now help you um, contextualize this for your context, right? Because it's not going to be, this is like, hey, we want to get you 80% down the field, and then let's, let's, let's then let you contextualize to move it forward from there. But think about it like that, right? So know, articulate, contextualize, create. That's just in the vision competency. Well, people, dev- I mean, discipleship-wise, I mean, you would want your volunteers to be able to, you know, display the fruit of the Spirit to, you know, exhibit. I mean, and at the senior leader level, I mean, you would want the, the senior leader to be able to teach theology and to be able to, you, you know, like it, it's different. Proficiency is different. So the beauty of this and I know, I mean, we're going to focus on discipleship pathway, but because we have, I thought we had an hour, so we have extra 15 minutes. So I just wanted to uh, share about this just a little bit. Um, because of leadership, because this is a leadership pipeline, what you would basically do is, let's say you have a brand new student pastor that's like fresh out of seminary and they, you know, they think they know everything. 
uh, right? Because, I mean, they just finished seminary, they finished Bible college, and it's like their first ministry position. They're like, ah, I'm really good. And, and they might be like up here, like a student pastor should be up here. But when it comes to people development, this is, you know, here's, so um, volunteers should lead self, right? Uh, leaders, when it comes to people development, should be able to lead others, Ministry directors should be able to lead leaders, and then senior leaders should be able to lead the organization. So here's an example. You don't really learn this in seminary and Bible college. Like you might now, but not when I was, when I went. This is not, I mean, you might have read a book on like spiritual leadership by Oswald Sanders or like by Blackaby, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're proficient in this. Right? So brand new student pastor, here's an example. Let's say your student pastor is here, but what often happens uh, in student ministries? And, and what is the temptation for pastors of churches in under 100 context? You know, you have under 100 people at your church. The temptation is that the senior pastor does everything, right? Or that's at least the expectation that people have on you, right? And, but here's the thing. If, you, if, if this is really what competency looks like, then for the student pastor, they may re- be really good at leading other people. But they may not really be good at leading leaders. So what happens is they have a huge leadership team. They may have five or six volunteers or seven volunteers uh, that they're leading them, but they have no leaders of others. So how do you then develop? So for your student pastor, if you're evaluating them, you would say, okay, this next year, I want you to... like." This currently where you're at, you should be here. You should be displaying proficiency at all of these. And you, you are here, but you're here and you're here and you're here, here and you're here. So what does development look like for your student pastor this next year? Well, it's to up these, right? Do you see how that works? And then let's say you have a star and this is, I mean, there's a lot being written these days on like high performing uh, leaders and high performing and we you can identify those people in your church right maybe they're lay or they're on staff and it's like how do you keep someone who's high performing right I mean you, you can only I mean money only goes so far like you can't and plus you got your church budget and it's like you just you can't just give people who are high performing you can't just give them raises to keep them and that doesn't really work that well what you would honestly really want to do in developing your culture is and this is, a, this is a very key question when, as it relates to engagement. Would you, if you were offered a job at a sim, in a similar role, but at a much higher pay, would you leave? And, I mean, if you were, like, if you loved your context, you would not leave, even if you were going to make ten, twenty thousand, thirty thousand dollars $20,000, $30,000 more, Right? If you really loved your context. I mean, money is one. I mean, if you're being underpaid and you can't even pay your bills, I mean, that's one thing, right? But I mean, if it's like, you know, the Lord is sufficient and, you know, he's providing you with his daily bread and you're like, yeah, I would like a nicer car, but I mean, I really love my car. I mean, that's not a big enough motivator to get you going, right? I mean, think about this. There's this uh, survey called Q12. How, How many of you heard of Q12? So Gallup, okay. So Gallup has these 12 questions uh, that measure employee engagement. And th- at least three out of the 12 talk about development. 
Has someone talked to you about your development in the last six months? Right? Uh, you know, do you have an active plan of growth? Do you have, so these are, these are things that actually help us grow, help us develop, and help us improve, and it actually keeps us engaged in what we're doing. So think about this. The beauty of this is let's say you have every, like you personally, but let's say, let's say you have a staff member that is, like they're knocking it out of the park, high performing, then what can you do? Maybe you're like, maybe there's no room there's no opportunity for them to be a senior leader at your church. But what you can do is develop them in all of these competencies. Even though there's no position, you can continue to develop them. So that maybe there, is, there will be a position or there'll be an opportunity. Maybe you want to develop, you know, create an opportunity or something maybe a year later. But you see how that development keeps them engaged? Okay, now I know what I just talked about was very highly staff-focused. But the reason I share this is because I believe the church should be the place where the best leaders are developed in our society and our culture. I sincerely believe, and I sincerely believe that we can, because if you've ever worked in a secular mar- in the in the marketplace, like it's pretty rough, development wise, and it's like it's not like hey, um, what's what's your name again? Nick. Nick. It's like it's not, it's not like Nick. You know, I really want you to grow. I mean, I would love for you to, like, let's say I was your supervisor. It's not like, Nick, let me get you learning opportunities, you know, because then it's like, I don't want him to take my job, right? And it, it really is this corporate, you know, ladder climbing, backstabbing. It, I mean, a lot of cultures are like that in our workplaces. And it's like really fend for yourself. But imagine what it would look like if you as a church were developing your volunteers where they were, they were growing. And, and I mean, to lead leaders, I mean, the church should be developing the best managers in the workplace. And what does good management look like? It's servant leadership, right? It's Jesus' style of leading. Right? I mean, just so what would that look like? So, so the reason I share this is, I mean, this would be huge. If you were to help, if you were to be able to help everyone in your church grow in their ability to, I mean, create vision, to develop people, to be, you know, stewards of all that God has entrusted them, to, to learn how to collaborate well, uh, to grow in strategy. I mean, that's huge. But this is what we do in our churches. There's a seventh column here, which is uh, ministry uh, specific skills, right? Or, or, or ministry specific or role-based skills. And this is what we usually do. We ignore all of this. And if we are doing any of this, it's by accident or it's not articulated. And this is what we usually do. This is, this is leadership development for us. So you're a brand new children's ministry volunteer or you're, you're a mom or you're a dad that's dropped, dropping off your kids always on time. And you're like, oh, we need new volunteers to do check-in for us. So who do you identify? You identify the keen parents, right? And you're like, hey, you're, you're coming early anyway. Can you help with check-in process? And you're like, great. So what do you do? For the, you, you teach them their role-based skill. This is how you boot the computer. This is how you, you know, click. The, this, is how you, this is the password to open up the check-in thing. And if the printer ever gets jammed, then this is what you're supposed to do, and here are the new, here's where the, the tape is, like the, the, the stickers if you ever run out, right? That's what we do. And we're like, man, we are so good at leadership development. 
Like I taught her, like we, we, I didn't even have to teach her. I mean, the, someone else taught them how to do it. Like, we are good. You are awesome. Bless you. And you're gone. Right. And then, cause you got to fill other vacancies. And then what do you do if someone's ready or like, you know, you want to, you want to find someone to lead a Sunday school class. Well, okay. Well, this is what kids ministry looks like. And this is how you teach the class. This is what the curriculum looks like. Here's this. And you're like, done. You are now a leader. And all we do most of the time in our churches is focus on role-based skills. But if you remember back to that leadership code study, this is, thir- this is uh, I mean, this is, this is like the 30% that makes someone effective. Like that's specific focus skills in that role, in that area. This is what spans across. So here's the vision, right? Imagine what it would look like. And here's, here's a, I mean, very practical, real example. Let's say you have a, uh, a, a you know a, a mom who has a fifth grade you know and a, a fifth grade daughter and and the mom has been volunteering kids ministry since the kid's been in like kindergarten right and all of a sudden now the fifth grader is graduating and is going to go to middle school and is going to go up to junior high the junior high ministry right so what is what does the mom do maybe if the mom loves kids ministry she's going to stick but maybe she's just really volunteering because she wants to spend more time with her kids because she's working two shifts. She doesn't really get to spend much time with her daughter because she's a single mom, but she wants to, she still wants to serve, but it's a way for her to just still be involved in her kid's life, you know, to, you know, bringing her on Wednesday night on, you know, I mean, that's a real situation, right? Um, So now the daughter is in sixth grade and kids ministry doesn't happen at the same time as junior high ministry. So what does the mom want to do? If she wants to keep on volunteering, she would want to move into the junior high ministry, right? So, but I mean, that's painful for whoever the children's pastor is. Cause I mean, that's, that person's probably, you know, a really good volunteer, but think about it. If the, if that lady, let's say was serving at the leader level, she's proficient here when it comes to children's ministry, but she is not proficient here when it comes to student ministry. But if she displayed proficiency all here, then shouldn't, shouldn't the transition be really easy? But what do we do? You're changing ministries? Here's a brand new application form. And you start from scratch. Do you see how demotivating that can be for a volunteer? And it's like, well, I don't want to do that. I mean, I've been... And imagine if they were here. You know, imagine by the time the leader is done middle school, by the time her daughter goes to high school... She's probably going to be at this level if you're very intentional. I mean, dang, like she could, this, this mom could probably even like lead the ministry. Wouldn't you want her to keep on growing at this level? So that's a leadership pipeline working really well at all levels, right? And that's what, that's what I spend most of my time doing. But here's the tension that I had. When we were teaching this and all this, I mean, discipleship is here, right? It's one of the things. But, I mean, discipleship is not the same thing as leadership development. I mean, it's, it's, it's not really like this. It's kind of more like this. So when I was writing my book, No Silver Bullets, uh, it was, that was the tension I had. Because all day, every day, I'm, I'm focusing on leadership pipeline, but my passion's discipleship. So when I was writing No Silver Bullets, I was like, oh, what do I do? I mean, how did the two relate? And then it's just, it kind of, it, it developed like this where I was like, hey, they're distinct. So this, this equips and that matures. 
right? This, uh, you know, this discipleship pathway is developing and leadership pipeline is deploying, right? You see how they connect there, but they're not the same thing. Now think about like this. If your discipleship pathway and your leadership pipeline are two strands, uh, this is what your strategy is. So everything that your church does to get to where you want to go, right? This is the where you want to go. Everything your church does is either going to be developing and moving people toward Christ or equipping or deploying them. Everything. Men's ministry, women's ministry, Sunday school, children's, everything. Everything that a church does, even, you know, serving in a homeless shelter, planting churches, in all of that, you're either, you're, you're doing one or the other, or you're doing both. So do you, and that's the question I have here, right? Do you have a discipleship pathway and do you have a leadership pipeline? And a discipleship pathway is not, do you have your 101 to 401 curriculum? Or do you have your Bible studies all set out? That's not what a disciple... A discipleship pathway is not a set of classes. But that's often what we think of it as. So do you have a pathway for making disciples? Which that's what the rest of our time is going to be about. And here's the other part. Do you have a leadership pipeline in place? What differentiates a church, your church from the church down the road are your values. So here's the thing. Vision is where you're going. Strategy is what you're doing to get to the where you're going. And your values are how you're doing what you're doing to get to where you're going. Can you say that again? So the values are how you're doing the what of strategy to get to the vision that you to, to get to the where that God is calling you to. So here's an example. Uh, you know, and your values are, I mean, it's huge. So look at this, look at this one spectrum here, right? Let's say this spectrum here is talking about um, like outside the walls of your church, right? Outside the walls of your church. If on the one hand, you had a articulated value at your church called like kingdom multiplication, like let's say that was a value for your church, and then maybe for another church, you have the least of these as a value. And when I talk about values, uh, I mean, a value is not a value. There are different types of values. And Patrick Lencioni uh, describes them in four different ways. Uh, I, I draw it out um, a little bit differently, but I like the four categories he creates. Right here are your core values. So that's who you are, the stuff of who you are. Here are your aspirational values, right? So where you're going. Uh, here are your accidental values, because they're not in where you're going. And here are your permission to play values. So in other words, uh, you know, gospel believing, you know, spirit filled, uh, Bible, you know, you know, you know, these kind of values that a lot of churches have, and they're like, oh yeah, I have my values. I mean, th those are permission to play values. Like, those are statement of faith values. Right? They are. Now, I understand some of you might be like, yeah, but that differentiates us from the Catholic church down the road. Yeah, I was like, I get that. But that doesn't actually drive strategy. Right? It's, it's kind of just get you in the game, permission to play. So what are the core values for your church? So let's say a church, so two churches when they're looking at beyond their walls, outside the walls of their church, these are two, these are values. 
These, these could be core values for a church. Now think about it. If your church had the value of kingdom multiplication, right? And you had 10% of your budget to invest in things outside of the church, and you were gathering around a table and talking about how are we going to spend the temper, how are we going to kind of tithe our budget to outside the walls of our church? If your value is kingdom multiplication, what ideas would come up in that conversation for strategy? So kingdom multiplication is your lens. What would you say if kingdom multiplication was your lens and you're thinking of outside the walls and ministry initiatives? Missionaries. Missionaries, yep. So global missionaries, church planting, right? Exactly. Let's say, your, let's say your lens was the least of these. It's still, it's, I mean, it's a great value. I mean, they're both biblical values. But let's say your core value was the least of these and you're looking at 10% beyond the walls of your church. What sort of ideas would come up? Exactly. Clean water, food, you know, pantry, you know, all that, right? I mean, homeless shelters. But do you see how those are all really good ministries? And what happens if a church doesn't have this, if, if a church doesn't have their values articulated, what happens at that table of brainstorming? What happens? Exactly. Everyone just brings up whatever they want to do, right? Because they're like, well, it's, it's outside the walls of our church. Who are you to say that, who are you to say that homeless shelter, you know, giving our money to the homeless shelter is a bad thing? So some people are like, no, we have to. I mean, look at the systemic poverty in our city. Another person's like, yeah, but that's why we have the mission, you know, the, the mission agency in, this, in downtown. We are a church, so we need to be planting churches. And, this per- and you can't, you'll never get anywhere because they're both really good things that t- talked about in the scriptures. So as a church, if you say yes to everything, I mean, you're, you're always going to be spinning your wheels. Right now, the what of everything we're doing is developing disciples, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. But what's going to differentiate your church from the other churches down the road are your values. So do you see how important it is to articulate your values? Now, most churches that I work with, their values aren't articulated to the point where they need to be. Right? And, and the reason why is because it takes a lot of time to get there. It really does. But this is, here's the dream, right? This is where you want to get to. If you are the lead pastor of your church or on the senior leadership team of your church, and you've spent the last 10 years at your church, and you are about to transition to either retire or to go to a different church, and you've built, I mean, you have been the decision maker, you have raised up a team behind you, and you've gathered significant momentum, and then, and then 10 years later, let's say your polity, you can't identify, and you don't have any say, for example, into who your successor is, right? Because there are some pol- church polities where that's the case. Others, you can identify your successor and others you can't. So let's say that's the case. And you had significant kingdom ministry, great momentum, awesome. And it's like, man, this is going to be my legacy. It's going to be great. And then you're gone. And a year later, what happens? Yeah, <laughs> I like that. You know, I mean, a lot of the things that were gaining significant momentum are changed. Right? I mean, even, I mean, the other guy's a Jesus-loving guy, I mean, or a Jesus-loving person, right? A guy or, I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Like, that, it, totally. But, but, 
with the leadership change, the reason why sometimes there's an entire flip in ministry is because there are, the values aren't set. Now, if the entire leadership team, the elders, the pastoral search committee, whoever is identified, you know, I mean, if they all believed in the values that were completely set, that even if you weren't there, you know, it's like the values of your church are the lens through which you view and if you don't have these articulated, then whoever is the senior leader in your church or senior leadership in your team in your church, I mean, there are values that a lot of times they're dictated by who the senior leader is or who the primary communicator is. It's not a bad thing, but when you're doing your audit, and, and um, the reason I'm sharing all this, because uh, the chapter right before, so in my book, No Silver Bullets, you know, I go through five shifts in the five first chapters, uh, and we're going to be talking about the first two shifts but then I go to how do you introduce change? What are your vision, strategy, and values? So I have audits to help you identify this. And then the last chapter is how do you then create a discipleship pathway? And the reason why that's at the end is because most churches want to start with your discipleship pathway. But if you start with your discipleship pathway and you haven't articulated this stuff, you're basically, and I'll, I'll show this to you in the next slide, you're basically going to be copying strategies that don't actually end up working. So, so your church has core values. Like there are core values that dictate decisions. Your task as a leader is to identify and uncover what those are. Because once you uncover and you can articulate what those are, what can you do? What can the pastoral search committee do? They can make sure that whoever they're hiring next, if this is your value, that that's the value to whom they hire. Right? The, the ideal here is that you would want your values so clear that if you, were, if you were hit by a bus and you were in the hospital for six months, that your church wouldn't necessarily change that much six months later when you return. Because the decisions that people are making are all through the same lens of values that you have. Does that make sense? Right? So here's an example. I mean, my church that I serve at as a teaching pastor, we have no senior pastor. Now, I know that sounds cool, right? It's like kind of like, oh, it's like, you don't have a senior leader. You, know, you have like a leadership team. You have a plurality of leaders. And it does sound, I mean, I love it. I sincerely believe in the plurality of leaders and that absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? So I'm not the fan of the solo senior pastor that runs there. I mean, because it's just, I, we've seen too many falls, right? So I love a plurality of leader type of model, but it's slow, it's not glamorous, right? It takes a long time to make decisions, right? But because of the unique context of our church, and our, I mean, there's a long story as to how it happened the way it is, the way it happened. We have no senior pastor. It's two, I mean, our campus pastors, our elders, we have unpaid elders that rotate off, you know, in terms. And I'm, a te- I'm the teaching pastor. I'm not even an elder at my church, right? But I was helping my church identify this. So for six months straight, I was going to every elder meeting. We did a retreat to try to uncover what are the values of our church. And then after that, we had a late, we had volunteers and students and adults and seniors and, you know, all the different age groups, different volunteer roles coming in, come in and be like, hey, these are the values that we believe exist today. We're not talking about aspirational ones, things we want to become. These are just the core values that we believe exist today. Do you see it? And what you want that conver- the way you want that conversation to go is you want the people to sit there and be like, what's new? I already knew that. Then you know you've got it right. 
You don't want them to look and be like, that's great, but which church, <laughs> right? Which church are you talking about, right? Because core values exist, right? And that's why the audits I have and all that stuff are, are helpful to get you there. Uh, but, but yeah, so that's leadership pipeline. That's the context. So this, this is what we're going to be talking about right now, right? Discipleship pathway. Okay. Was that, was that helpful? Okay. Yeah. And I think, I feel like this paradigm has been so, it's been amazing for me and it's, it's neat to see how helpful it's been for others. Cause it's kind of like, Oh, we have values. We have strategy. We do this, we do this, but it's just neat to see the unique role and how they interact with one another. Right. Uh, yeah. So that's that. So if you want to focus and you want to do more on leadership pipeline, uh, design to lead is a great book. And uh, there's a website called, um, I'll just really quickly, My Leadership Pipeline.com is the website where we do our coaching, consulting, and we do our conferences. And then the last thing is uh, lifeway.com slash ministry grid. And Ministry Grid, uh, if you've, how many of you have heard of Ministry Grid? Okay, so Ministry Grid, if you go to this website, this is the brand new Ministry Grid, completely changed. And that's actually what we do here is uh, we have, you guys know Paul Tripp, the name Paul Tripp? So Paul Tripp does all our content for discipleship. Uh, Will Mancini does all our content here. Uh, you know, uh, Mac Lake does all our people development. Eric Geiger does all our strategy. So we actually have all this filmed out in like five to ten minute videos. You know, about six five to ten minute videos and a quiz and a discussion guide at each level. So it's basically, hey, you wanna you wanna implement this in your church? Well, we have the content and the platform, and then it's like, um, yeah, and then it's just a great way to kind of get you eighty percent down the field, uh, and then it gives you the ability to contextualize and all that stuff. Right, so, but I'm not, yeah. How's the, the interface on ministry here when it started out, it was... Yeah, it's completely different right now. a lot easier user interface. Yeah, go to lifeway.com slash ministry grid. So it's all, it's, you know, it's all on here. Like you can do it on, you can build training, take training, monitor training, everything with your thumbs. Like it's blazing fast. So, yeah. All right, so that's that. And that's my book there that I was referencing. That's what I'm going to be talking about. Uh, and I know I, I dropped down the store today uh, or yesterday, and I know uh, they said they're um, selling them for 40% off. So I don't know what the price is, but they were like, hey, it's 40% off. I was like, hey, that's awesome. Uh, so that's that. All right. So how do you build a discipleship pathway? In order to take your first steps, you need to basically uncover the way that your church views discipleship from a 50,000 foot level, right? From a 50,000 foot level. So when it comes to developing a process for discipleship, uh, this, is a, this is a great spectrum here. And this is a difference between destination and direction. Now, what's really fascinating here, and this is, a, this is the difference. <coughs> if you view discipleship from a destination mindset, you see discipleship as a Take this class, uh, go to this, get baptized, you know, take this um, and, and then serve. And, you know, it's like you, you have to do these things and then you're discipled, right? That's a destination because you get to a destination and you're done, 
right? That's the destination view of discipleship. A directional view of discipleship is it's an ongoing direction. It's an ongoing, you know, people will say, you know, Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction. Or, you know, you look at Hebrews 12 and, you know, running the race of faith with perseverance, Philippians 3. I mean, people would quote passages like that and you're like, hey, there's no end. You know, we're just keeping, you know, continuing to go and all that. Destination and direction. That's the difference. Now, the majority of pastors and church leaders and individuals that I survey, I mean, it's the majority are going to say, hey, no, discipleship is directional, right? I mean, it's biblical. It's biblical to see it that way because you look at some of those verses. The problem is, the problem is that even though most people, if you corner them, they would say that discipleship is directional. If you then turn around and view how, they're, how they actually do discipleship in their church, it would actually be destination. Why? Because we teach the way that we've been taught, right? We lead the way we've been led. We parent the way that we've been parented. We disciple the way that we've been discipled unless we consciously do so otherwise. That's, that's why, right? So think about it. I mean, I remember this, like, I, my, and I have three kids. I have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old. And a few years back, my eight-year-old, uh, and I mean, she still does this now, but I mean, she just wasn't listening. Like, hey, come here. I was like, she didn't come here. I was like, clean up your room. I was like, she's not cleaning up her room. So, so I, one time, I was so frustrated that what she wasn't listening. I'm like, why do I have to repeat myself? I just started, I was like, do it. You know, I'm going to count down from five. And if you don't do it, then, you know, whatever, right? Taking away your Halloween candy or, you know, no more iPad or whatever it is. So I count down from five and she comes and she does it inevitably. Because uh, I'm th- so threatening, right? <laughs> uh, and then Christina looks at me, my wife, and uh, she basically says, did you think that was a good idea? <laughs> and have you ever been asked a question where there's really only, I mean, husbands, you know this, there's really only one right answer uh, in the way that the question was asked. It wasn't really even a question, it was a rhetorical question. Because the answer was, no, it wasn't a good idea. I don't know why it wasn't a good idea, but I know it wasn't a good idea. So, honey, I'll never do it again. <laughs> That's how I felt. So I said, no, it's not. So then she asked, and my, my wife is a social worker, so she asked, so why did you do it? I'm like, I don't care. Like, I, I just did it. Like, I don't want to think about all that. Uh, and she's like, no, like, why did you do it? And then, I was, and then I remembered my childhood, and my mom would uh, make me carrot juice, like, like 100% carrot juice, like not an apple or an orange in there that like eases it off. There's a reason you can't buy 100% carrot juice in the store because it's nasty. And there's like this foam. It's not like a cappuccino foam. Like it's like, it's, I don't even know what that foam is. It's nasty. And then when, I, when, my, when my mom felt like super extra, like she wanted to bless me, she put a couple stalks of celery in there too. No sugar. No maple syrup, you know, nothing, right? Canadians, right? I mean, we love maple syrup, but no maple syrup in that. So, yeah, so I would actually, I, I, still, I still, like, have negative feelings every time I hear a juicer going off uh, because she would do that, and she would guilt me into it. She'd be like, I don't even make this for your three older sisters. Like, this is just for you. Like, you are so special that I, like, I, my, your sisters are asking me to make this for them. They can make it themselves. This is, I'm making this for you. 
because you are, you know, my, you know, you need to go to Harvard, you need to do this, you need to like, you, need, you are my retirement plan, right? I was supposed to be, I was supposed to be a doctor. Uh, being a pastor, I'm not the retirement plan anymore. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, so she did that. And so I would, as a kid, I would, I would try to, um, come up with a lot of different excuses as to why I didn't have to drink the orange juice or not the orange juice, the carrot juice. So I remember this one time I heard the juicer going off and it was after dinner. It was like seven, eight o'clock. And I was like, Oh, I have a great idea. I'm going to brush my teeth. So I heard the juicer go off and I started brushing my teeth. And in my mind, I was like, mom, and my parents were, I mean, they owned a grocery store. Going to the dentist for me was like a three-hour thing. And I literally thought cleanings were supposed to take three hours because my parents didn't have insurance and we had to go to the university. So I always had students do all my dental work. So literally, when I turned 18 and I had to go to a real dentist, I said, Mom, I'll be back in three hours. And they were done in 30 minutes. And I literally felt gypped. Like I was like, I want my money back because you didn't do what you are supposed to do. Right. That's, that was my childhood growing up. So I brushed my teeth and I was like, mom, you don't, I know, I know like money's tight. And this is what I was going to say to her. I know money's tight and, uh, you know, it's, uh, you can't, I mean, you can't like replenish your enamel. So, I mean, I've already brushed my teeth and if I drink this, I'm going to brush my teeth again and it's just going to wear it out. I mean, I don't want to do this to you. Right. And that was my excuse. So I had it all planned up as a teenager and she started walking up and, you know, uh, you know, Jurassic Park, like where, you know, it's like, you know, you, you see the water going like that. So she was coming up the stairs and I saw it and, and, and then she came and she put the water bottle down on the counter and she's like, drink it. And I was like, I was like, no, I'm not going to drink it. And she's like, drink it. I was like, no, I'm not going to drink it. And then I went like this and I like deeked her and I went under and I ran to my room and then she started counting down from five. And I was like, oh, that's why I count down from five. I hated that. <laughs> so why do I do it? Because it's what was done to me. That's how we operate. So think about schooling. How, how were you schooled? Were you, supposed to, were you supposed to talk and give feedback? No, you learned that in college and university, right? I mean, I was, I was presenting some of my, some of my stuff to a, a Christian college a few weeks back to like first year, like 18 year old students and they didn't say a thing. And I was like, why are you guys talking? Cause that's what you're supposed to do. You're just supposed to kind of repeat back what the teacher said and you're supposed to sit, you're supposed to listen. There was no feedback and interaction and engagement. But as adults, we know that that's not the best way to learn, right? Yeah. I understand this is more of a work, you know, this is kind of a lecture ish, right? But this is not this is not the best way to do development. It's a, best, it's a good way to communicate a lot of information, but it's not the best way to retain and develop, right? So when we look at our churches, how do we disciple? A lot of times it's via classroom. Why? Because that's, that's our entire life. But is that really the best way to disciple? So that's the tension we have there. That's the first spectrum. The next spectrum is the accountability spectrum. Now, I'm not talking about have you confessed your sins, you know, not that kind of thing. I'm talking about a cultural sense of accountability. So in other words, if you have a low cultural sense of accountability at your church, right, if you have a low sense of accountability, then it's basically if you say you're going to do something, you know, it might not, people might not 
like you're probably going to change in three months. Like I heard someone's story yesterday saying uh, someone came up to me here at the conference and he was like, you know, at my church, we started something new and uh, it like required like we did heavy, intense, you know, the triad type of discipleship stuff like Greg Ogden, you know, Discipleship Essentials. I love that stuff. I mean, I'm a huge advocate for the, the benefit of that life-on-life relational. You know, but someone said, hey, we, we were introducing that f- from a classroom model to a triad model, and now all of a sudden we're like, people were boycotting it. Because, I mean, even Greg Ogden would say, if you, were in one of, if you went to one of his sessions, even he would say, you know, it takes, it takes a while to get there, right? Because it's a big cultural change. But they did that. And one person actually said, you know, the pastor asked that person, you know, why aren't you? And this was like a heavily invested person in the church. And why aren't you going to do it? And, and they're like, well, I don't, I don't really want to do it. We're just going to wait till this passes. <laughs> right? So is that the sense of accountability? Is that, is that the culture in your church where there's this low sense of accountability? Or is there a high sense of accountability where if you say you're going to do something, you do it and people do it as well? Right? That's what we're trying to get at here. So when an ask is made, when you say something, do people view it as conjecture? Do they view it as a suggestion? Do they view it as a recommendation? Or do they view it as a command? And then what's the follow-up process after that? So churches on the low end here of low accountability, it's pretty much discipleship is like choose your own adventure. Right? That's what, you know, those choose your own adventure books. That's basically what discipleship looks like for low accountabilities. High accountability ones, I mean, it's like, whoa, you know, people actually are doing it and people are going through these classes and, and this and that and, and, it, and it seems good and it could be good, but it could also be not good. And that's why I wanted to show you this. So this is what I call the influences matrix. And this is basically uh, the two spectrums intersected, right? And I love quadrants. Sometimes they're a little bit hard to get your mind around. And the reason I, I started this way, because every quadrant is two spectrums, right? And the best way to digest a quadrant is by understanding the two spectrums first and then putting them all together. So if you look at this quadrant here, this basically is an overlay. You guys uh, remember uh, encyclopedia, like old school encyclopedia, like real, real Encyclopedia Britannica world book. Uh, do you know those ones with the human anatomy where it's like transparencies? So that's what, so this, think of this as a transparency that I'm, I'm giving to you that you can then put on top of your church today. I am, this is not a, hey, ditch everything you're doing and then become, you know, and then, and then just become an intentional church. This is, because it's not. It, it can't work like that. This is a transparency that'll help you identify, oh, in light of this, where is my church today? That is what this is for. Because we're basically, I'm basically trying to help you identify where your church is at from a 50,000 foot level. So let's walk through each of these personas of churches. Right, the first one, uh, and we have 20 minutes left. Okay, so the first one is your copycat church. Right, so your copycat church is basically the church that says, uh, man, I just went to this conference and, and look at what this person just said and I bought this book and I did this and let's do it. Right, and they, you bring a new model into your church. And then, I mean, we've, I mean I've, we've all done it, right? right. And what, what do you do three months later? What do you do a year later? You change, right? And so what happens here, you see discipleship as a destination. It's like, I, well, this person said... 
you know, the book said if I just do these three things and I just set up these four classes, then people will be discipled, right? Then they just got to do these destination things and then they'll be there. But because of the low sense of accountability, there's constant change. Well, high accountability, this is the silver bullet church where they still see discipleship from a, hey, you got to do this, 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 and this, uh, and then you're going to be discipled. But because that's a high sense of accountability, it looks like everything from the outset that the church is functioning really well. So it's like, look at this. Look at their, they, they shut their back door, right? They got the, I mean, like last year's Easter attendance is what the church is at this year, a year later, Right? And you're like, how did they shut their back door? Well, because they have the newcomer's class. And after the newcomer's class, then the next Sunday they, they, do, they do this class. And then after they do this class, they do that class. And then they get them into serving. Right? And it's like, look at that. Look how many people are serving. And now they're in groups. And, I mean, that's discipling. Right? That's, I mean, you've moved them through. Well, you could be moved through and still not be discipled. Right? We know that. But that's the silver bullet church. It looks really good from the outside. The, the, the problem between the silver bullet and the intentional are metrics. The silver bullet sees, the silver bullet church sees discipleship maturity as, you know, getting into a group, getting through the process, finishing the set of classes and giving a certain amount. Now, those are good metrics to measure. They are good indicators of maturity, but you could be, off the charts in all those metrics and still be a pagan and a Pharisee, right? So the difference between the silver bullet church and the intentional church are metrics for maturity, right? And that's what, if you were part of my last session, I talked about input goals, input goals and output goals. And I'll talk a little bit about that today, just to, for those of you who missed it, just to give you some context, right? So then you have the silver bullet church and then you have the hippie church here. And they're the ones that are like literally... You know, hey, you know, do what you want to do. If you want to go worship in the mountains while you're hiking this Sunday morning because you live in Colorado and it's, you know, it's great, you know, I mean, or you live in San Diego and you're going to like, you know, it's winter in other parts of the country, but you can surf. I mean, just surf on the waves. You know, you can worship God out there. It's fine. Just read the Bible or listen to the Bible or do, you know what I'm talking about? Like, it's just, it's just do whatever you want to do. Choose your own adventure. And there's a low sense of accountability. So everyone's kind of just doing whatever they want to do. Uh, and then the high accountability, that's the intentional church, where from the outset, someone, a silver bullet and an intentional church could look very similar, but the metrics are different. So here's, an exa- here's something really, really funny. Uh, someone, uh, someone messaged me privately. Uh, I mean, multiple people men- messaged me privately, same question, and they're like, okay, Daniel, Daniel, you know, do you know you work at Lifeway? where uh, there's, a, there's, there's a book called Simple Church, where Eric Geiger and, Kevin, uh, Eric Geiger and Tom Rainer, who are your bosses, like, are you saying, are you saying that, 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 they, that simple churches are silver bullet churches? Are you saying that purpose-driven is a silver bullet church? Are you saying that all of these mega churches across the country are silver? Like, and, and, you know, he was saying that privately because he was like, he didn't want to embarrass me publicly. Right? And I'm like, no, no, this is an overlay that helps you identify where you're at. Now, I don't know where Willow is at today, you know, Willow Creek. I, I have no idea. All I know is what you read in the news, right? You know, Christianity Today, you know, the latest thing I knew about Le- Willow was that the succession plan from Bill Hybels, right? So that's literally all I know about Willow. But I do know that they did the move survey. 
I do know that they realized that what they were doing, that they weren't discipling their people, right? I do know that. I mean, that's pretty public. So I don't know if they've done that really well and what the results been since they've made that shift. But I do know that the shift was, hey, this destination mode of discipleship isn't working anymore. They saw the need to shift the metrics. So you could have a mega church that looks like everything's going, you know, I mean, they're doing their own conference, right? Because it's like, come and see what my church is doing type of thing. And those are great experiences if you want to learn from them. I'm not harping. I mean, I've been to many of those, but it's like, how many times do we just copy what they're doing without analyzing where we're at, right? There's a guy named Sun Shu in the book, The Art of War. And uh, this is a paraphrase of what he said. He basically said, if you know your enemy, you're going to win half the time. If you know yourself, you'll win the other half. And how many times in church life do we focus on our enemy, like not our enemies, but the other churches, the other successful people. And we just were so obsessed with copying and figuring out what made, you know, great advice, right? And, And, you know, I've said it too. Find a church that's like a year ahead of you or find a church that's like the next barrier, whatever attendance barrier ahead of you and, and just see what you can learn from them. Yeah, it's great to learn from others. But too often, that's 100% of what we do. What do you mean you sh- they shift the metrics? Yeah, so that's, you were part of my previous session, right? So uh, let me talk about the input-output just for everyone and then I'll, okay. I'll get to that. Right. So do you see the difference? So the the beauty of the intentional church, and that's why I have self-assessments and church assessments and all that stuff through the through the book, No Silver Bullets, because it's like you need to know who you are before you can implement a discipleship pathway. Okay. so when it comes to uh, the your question, the big difference between intentional and silver bullet church, uh, the intentional churches are the ones that have understood that a goal is not a goal, but but. Input goals are different than output goals. And for those of you who are here in my earlier session, I'll just go super fast through this because I know that was about half of you. Uh, the rest, I mean, this is, this is chapter two of my book. All right, so, uh, so here's, you know, I talk about a diet. So four ways that we diet. Number one way is we say, I just want to lose weight, right? I just want to grow my church or I just want people in my church to be discipled. Does it work? No, at least you have a goal, but it doesn't, just because you have the goal doesn't mean you're going to get there, right? So second way that we try to lose weight is we, we have an output goal. So we have the result, like I want to lose 10 pounds in two months. So what do we do when we want to lose 10 pounds in two months? Well, every day you wake up and you weigh yourself on the scale. Did I do better today than I did yesterday, right? That's what our churches do. Every week we measure our attendance and our giving and we're like, did we do better this week or last week? You have no idea whether the stuff you're doing, the inputs are actually leading to those outputs. But, but you faithfully count your attendance and your giving because those are, you know, you just, it's, I mean, think, think about how ridiculous it would be if, you're, if you would say, I want to lose 10 pounds in two months and your entire lifestyle is the same, but the only thing that you did different was you weighed yourself on a scale every morning. Like, do you see how ridiculous that sounds? And you're like, okay, well, someone talked about the Atkins diet. I mean, where did that even go, right? I mean, like, who's, it's like that, like, totally went away. Uh, And it's like, oh, no, 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 someone talked to me about Whole30, or someone said, you know, I need to go to Orange Fitness, or I need to do this. And, I mean, just imagine if you just kept on bouncing from this to that, and you did it for a week or two at a time, and you kept on weighing yourself, and you're like, oh, I lost weight this time, but I didn't this time. 
and I did this time. You see how ridiculous that is? So that's an output goal way of measuring maturity and, and, and success. And, the, and the, third way to the third way that we try to lose weight is we move from output goals, the results you get, to input goals, which are the things that you do. Now, you know that, I mean, what's the thing that happens after you have a great workout at the gym? What do you want to do? Go eat something. And it's great how the smoothie shops are like right there at the Y and like whatever. I mean, it's awesome, but you know how many calories are in a smoothie? Like you're, it's a meal replacement. It's not a enhancement to your meal. A smoothie is like 400 something calories. If you add protein powder, you can get up to 600 calories in a smoothie. You're not supposed to have a burger with a smoothie. Right? Like, it, it, like it doesn't work that way. So, but what do we do? You're so hungry after you work out that you eat your, you know, you, I got to get my protein, right? I got I to get my smoothie. I got to do this. And you basically, you can, you could actually gain weight working out uh, because you just eat more than you're burning, right? That's the input way of doing it. And that's, and so the, the, the ideal way to lose weight is to combine inputs and outputs to say, I want to lose 10 pounds in two months. So you go online in a calculator and you're like, okay, well, 10 pounds in two months, uh, then my weight is this, my age is this, my height is this, and I need to intake, it spits out 1,700 calories. I mean, it's different for everyone, right? So, so then the workout that you do, I mean, even if you eat like a Chick-fil-A, you know, uh, like mega size, you know, everything, and it's like 1,000 calories, like you could do that as long as your net is 1,700. You know what I'm talking about? Like that's, that's the idea there. Uh, and there are a lot of diets built on that idea. Now, your heart may not be healthy if you're eating Chick-fil-A supersize me like every day. But if you're netting 1,700 calories for 60 days, you will lose weight. Right? That's for sure. So what does that look like in church discipleship? Well, when you look at, when you look at this, intentional churches understand, hey, oh, these are the input goals that we need to, that actually result in maturity. Right? These are the things that we can actually do that are going to result in maturity. And the intentional church has moved from mere outward metrics to things that they can do. Now, they're still measuring the outward metrics, like attendance and all that stuff, but they're actually influencing what will actually get them to maturity. That's the big difference there. So in the research, and uh, yesterday I talked about it uh, from the, in, in, the first, in the first session. So, uh, how many of you remember the whole confession uh, thing that I was talking about. Okay, so basically, if you these are output goals. So this is a this is from the transformational discipleship assessment. Uh, it's a, you know two massive research projects, but this was basically the result of it. Whereas, like, what does maturity look like in an individual? It's displayed and evidenced by these eight attributes. So, so these attributes. So maturity is not your output goal. These are not your input goals that lead to the maturity of out, the output goal of maturity. The, this, these are the output goals that, that, um, that together demonstrate or articulate what maturity is. So these are the output goals. There are inputs that you can do that, that, that result in the outputs. Right? So what does a mature disciple look like? What is a, what is a directional you know, mindset of discipleship look like? It's, it's your congregation growing in these eight attributes. Right? And, and we know it's a, I mean, I remember in my systematic theology class, uh, J.I. Packer was like, hey, you know, your growth in Christ is like going up an ever-spiraling tower. 
where you're going to hit Christology, pneumatology, you know, you know, you know, all the different ologies, and then the next time you come around, it's going to be different, right? Because it all, and that's the idea. So these eight attributes, you never, you never get there, but it's it's the direction you're moving towards. So what are the inputs that can actually lead to the output? So that's where my example yesterday was. If you confess your sins on a regular basis, it actually leads to you being more likely to share Christ with others. So, so every single, so in my book, every single one of these eight output goals, I actually have from the research five to six input goals that feed and grow each of these output goals. So here's the personalized example. Let's say you have someone who uh, has, has a really hard time serving God and others, right? And you're like, oh, you're just entitled and, you know, you, th- you, know, you have like first world problems and, you know, you all this, you, you know, that's kind of thing. So you're like, how do you help people get beyond that and really grow in their ability to serve God and others? Well, it, you could actually hit one out of the six or, or a couple out of the, you know, five or six input goals that'll actually help someone grow in that particular output goal. So do you see how that works there? Now, the big difference is there's faithfulness and fruitfulness, right? So you could do all the input goals that from the research show that you grow in the output goal, right? But it it, it may not actually work because maturity and growth is a result of the Holy Spirit and the work of God in your heart, right? So we know that, but it's kind of like sleeping. Uh, You can't force yourself to sleep, but you can create the conditions in which sleep will come. So there are things that we can do that will create the conditions in which spiritual growth ought to come and that from the research from a broad spectrum of respondents show that it does result, but ultimately transformation is a result of the Holy Spirit, right? So just, so this is not a mechanical like do this and now you're pharisaically going to become mature, right? There's the Holy Spirit's role. How do these relate to values? How do these helpful goals relate to values? Like, like these values here as a church? So this, this is really an individual, looking at the individual level. Uh, a church's values, this is like way higher up where it's like, you know, kingdom multiplication, you know, is a value. Or uh, one of the values at my church is roundtable leadership, right? That value doesn't work in every church. But because we have no senior pastor, it's like, well, you know, our value, you know, there's roundtable leadership. There is no first among equals at our, in our congregation, Another thing that sounds really good, but, you know, it's, it's, it, it's a lot of hard work and it takes a long time to do stuff, but it's, it's a value for us, right? So, so that would be more of the value. Yeah. So here, so then, how much time do we have left? Okay, six minutes. So how does this relate to your discipleship pathway, right? How does this relate to your discipleship pathway? So there are things that you can do, and this is where we'll end. And here's the other thing that I'll say before I go on. Um, uh, I know you're like, hey, eight is a lot, but now you're saying every one of these eight have five input goals, and you're like, how am I supposed to remember 40? Well, uh, in the research, we actually articulate, hey, there's one or there, there are certain input goals that increase all eight of them. So Bible reading is one of them, right? Not memorization or studying, just reading the Bible. The more frequently we found that someone read their Bible, they would actually grow in all eight, which is why that's a central, central piece to the way that I do discipleship on my church. Uh, but here's, here's, here's where I want to end here, okay? Um, let's see. Okay. 
So think about your discipleship in three circles. And this is when it comes to discipleship pathway. And this is not a, um, this is more for you to understand how it works than, uh, hey, I'm just going to print this out and make, and all of a sudden change the way that I do discipleship at my church. Right? So think about everything that you do from these three circles, ongoing steps, first steps, and next steps. So all the strategy that you do, all the discipleship that you do, think of it within these three circles and see if you can plot some of that stuff. Now, what, the reason I talk about these three circles is because a lot of times we view discipleship, we don't look at the ongoing, and a lot of times as a church we view discipleship as first and next. Uh, because we view a discipleship pathway as the things that we offer everyone. That's what we view discipleship. Why? Well, we talked about it, right? We disciple the way we've been discipled. How do you get your university degree? Well, you got to do your syllabus, right? You got to get, how do you pass a course? Well, you got to get past, you got to meet these requirements, right? That's life. But as a result, we've actually made discipleship and this is why even though we believe discipleship is directional, we, see, we, we program it destination-wise because we see it as, hey, discipleship is about the stuff that we offer you. Right? Listen to that. Discipleship is the stuff that we offer you. So if you do the stuff that I offer, here's another word, if you consume the stuff that I offer, then you're going to be good because this is what I'm offering you. Do you see how subtly we're, we've at, we are actually the reason consumerism is a big <laughs> deal in our churches? Like we actually subtly celebrate consumerism through the way that we often, I mean, big bulletins, huge program books that tell you all the classes that are going on. I mean, I was a part of, I mean, the big, I was a part of, like a 50,000, I served at a 50,000 person church in Korea for a couple of years, right? In Edmonton, it was like a three to 4,000 person church, right? Like I know programs, right? And, but that, but that it's, it's like this, oh, but what am I going to do? I, I don't really want to do, I don't like the teacher there. Or I want to do this. And, you know, it's this consumeristic thing. And you hope you're like, oh, but, but they're going to go and then they're going to be discipled. And yes, I mean, the Holy Spirit can do anything. But the culture that we're setting up actually promotes consumerism. So that's why the core central part of every church's discipleship pathway should not be what you offer. But do you see how I still have it? Because you still need to offer things. If you get rid of these two circles, we get into the hippie church. Right? It's intentional because you still need these two things. But the reason why the ongoing steps are the central part of your discipleship pathway is because the ongoing steps are the things that people do, are the, are, the, are the regular rhythms that the people are living out, regardless of whether you're brand new or a 50-year-old Christian or whatnot. This is, it's self-feeding. So how do you, in everything that you do as a church, cultivate an environment where people are growing as self-feeders? Right, because what what often happens, right? You like, oh, we ha we we're bringing in a guest speaker. We're doing this evangelism seminar. We want everyone to attend this evangelism seminar, you know. And, and then and then you're like, but I'm in a Sunday school class, or I'm in a life group, and you're saying I need to now do life group and the evangelism seminar, and that's how a lot of times how our schedules get so. It's like you see how like 
you see how wrong that sounds? It's like now all of a sudden I need to go to the evangelism seminar and my life group and my Sunday and now and you're like now go spend time with non-Christians. And like, but I don't have time to sit with non-Christians, right? So, so what we often do is we, we, we're like, but we want to give an evangelism seminar, which is the next step, because it's a good thing and people will grow in it. But a lot of times people hop from one class to next because that's what you've provided. What if the goal was actually the ongoing steps became the input goals? Where it was like, let's say, number one, Bible reading. Right? What if Bible reading became one of the ongoing steps and it was like, hey, you reading, I mean, that's what it, that being on a discipleship pathway means that these are things that you're going to be doing until Jesus comes back. Amen. But you're going to go to a class. You could even, I would even say, and you know, being in a community group, you know, that's an ongoing step. And you're like, but go to the class with your community group mm-hmm. or cancel your community group and just go here. Right? Or don't go and just do your community group and take the evangelism thing and be your next site. Right? You see how you see how it's like there's that and then you have brand new people, the first steps, and it's like, okay, what are brand new believers gonna do? Okay, so the last thing that I want to share here in the ongoing first and next is this. Um, uh, echo chambers. So uh, if you there's a and I love writing about this kind of stuff. So Danielm.com. Um, actually I'll do this. Um, and that's my email, daniel at newchurches.com. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Daniel Sangi. Sangi is my Korean name, so I'd love to connect. Danielm.com. So I recently wrote something uh, this last Tuesday on echo chambers. How many of you are familiar with echo chambers? Okay, so echo chambers, it's just basically the whole thing of, you know, why, why was the media so surprised that Trump won? Because if you're a Democrat, then, then you're only seeing Democratic stuff. If you're a Republican, you're only seeing Republican stuff because that's how marketing works these days. So there's this great TED talk of this guy who was uh, a survivor of police. I mean, this guy was a huge Black Lives Matter advocate. He was a survivor of police brutality. Anyways, one day his his phone, like like every all these trolls were hating him and you know saying all this really bad stuff about him and all because he was standing up for his rights. This was like like recent, right? This wasn't in this, you know, this wasn't during Martin Luther King. Like, it was like <laughs> Black Lives Matter. So, so he actually, he was like, how does, how does the alt-right, this white supremacist, how do they actually believe this about another human being? Like, how does someone get to the point where you really truly believe that another person of another race is like not even a human being? You know what I'm talking about? Like, how, how does that even happen? So he actually set up a Facebook profile as a white supremacist, literally. And he started liking all the white supremacist agencies and magazines and, and anyone who was black, he would say really bad things about. And he would, you know, like he set up a Facebook profile. He went undercover as a, as a, as a white supremacist guy. And you know what happened? He went into the echo chamber of the white supremacist and he's like, that's how someone can really believe this. Because that's all you see. And now, instead of being the only white supremacist in your entire community of people where you were the outcast in your school, and maybe you had one other person who kind of had the same views as you, but you're still really the minority and the outcast, now online, you can be, have the largest community in the world, and you feel emboldened. You see, that's how rallies happen. You know, because now, now you're not the outcast anymore. You're like, you're the majority. 
So echo chambers, how does that relate to discipleship? Uh, we are conditioned for targeted marketing. If something is for everyone, it is not for you. That's how marketing works these days. And we, are, we see fi- over 5,000 marketing messages a day. So that is how everyone in our church is inundated, is inundated. Then, then what does it look like for, let's say you do an evangel, let's say you do a men's breakfast and it's sincerely going to be a really, really good men's breakfast because it's going to talk about purity and it's going to talk about all, and then, but, but how do you, how do you target it where it's not just, oh, if you're a guy, then you should come. Then it's like, I am a guy, but it doesn't sound like, it sounds, that the way it's worded, it sounds like it's only for baby boomers. And I don't want to go. But when you as a church, you were like, no, but we want everyone to go. We even want the 15-year-old kid, you know, the Gen Z kid to go. But, you're, but the guy looks at it and they're like, no, but it's for everyone. It's like, it's not for me. The reason I talk about first and next steps is because when you're talking about, let's say, an alpha class or, you know, a newcomer's class, you need to specifically in your bulletin, in your announcements, in your, in your shoulder tapping, say, this is for you. If this is your first time here or if you are here in your relationship with Jesus or if this, this is for you, right? And you could have a ton of things going on in your church. That's fine. I'm not saying get rid of the 10-page bulletin. I don't think it's a, good, a 10-page bulletin is a good idea, right? Or I don't think the program book for all your classes is a good idea. But I'm not saying you can't. You could be an intentional church and still all have that. But you're actually missing out because when you say everything is for everyone, then all of a sudden, what are ongoing steps? What does it look like to be a selfie? Everything washes out. All right, so uh, that's it for our time, but I'd love to, uh, I mean, connect and, you know, any, any way that I can help. But thanks for coming out, and yeah. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Make sure to download the sampler of LifeWay researcher Daniel M's new book, No Silver Bullets, for free at discipleship.org slash LifeWay. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.